0: Judges chapter 8, then the men of Ephraim said to Gideon, what is this that you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely, and he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer?" God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted, yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when Yahweh has given Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel Answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. <coughs> now Zeb and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, who had fallen, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers, east of Nobah and Jogbeha, and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascents of Haraz. And he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him, and he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth the lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel, and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As Yahweh lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jethro, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw the sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. Yahweh shall rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings, because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of the spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold beside the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and beside the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in the city in, in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was sub- subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, And the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abiezrites soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember Yahweh their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. You can be seated as we pray. Father, we stand together before you all acknowledging the limits of our own wisdom. Even acknowledging the bankruptcy of the kind of advice and wisdom that this world offers. We know we need something out out of the mortal realm. We know we need the wisdom of God Almighty. So as we look at this story, which you inspired for your scriptures, by your Spirit, teach us, speak into our hearts, shape our thinking, transform us. Help me and all of us to hear your word. In Christ's name, amen. A long, long time ago, before there was Instagram, before there was Skype, even before there was Facebook, there was this little device people used to give people a snapshot of their travels. It was called a postcard. This ancient communication device usually featured a picture on the front that gave you a glimpse into the foreign world that your friend was exploring. And then on the back side, it provided a little space for the sender to write a short personal note. Ancient scholars tell us that when someone received a postcard, it provided a bit of insight into what was happening in that person's travels. Well, I think it's in that sense that we could think of chapter 8 as three postcards from the front lines of Israel's victory over Midian. Each of the three vignettes given here are designed to give us insight into what's happening while God is rescuing Israel from Midian. So, as we look at the three different scenes, God has put these together to kind of say, here's what was actually going on. Let me give you a little insight into what was happening while I was winning a victory. We're going, to look at, uh, first, we're going to look first at kind of the front side, the picture on each of the postcards. So we'll go through each of the three stories and look at the picture on the front. And then we'll flip the stories over and read the note on the other side, if you understand the analogy. So let's look first at postcard number 1, which is verses 1 to 3. And the picture on the front of this postcard is not a pretty picture. You could call this picture self-glory, self-glory. Just after Yahweh has won a remarkable victory, the tribe of Ephraim complains. I mean, why didn't Gideon include us in the battle? Now, of course, there are charitable ways we could interpret their complaint. Perhaps they were complaining because they longed to be part of God's victory. Perhaps they were complaining because their hearts ached to join with Yahweh in His causes. Now, if those had been the motives, they would have been right motives and good motives. But God sees the heart, and He knows their motives. And He inspired this story to be told in a way that paints the Ephraimites in a negative light because it pits God's glory versus their glory. Remember in chapter 7, God makes clear that He is the one who will bring the victory. So look at chapter 7, verse 2. Yahweh said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. And then just a little further down in verse 4, Yahweh says to Gideon, The people are still too many. And he tells them to thin out the army further. But Ephraim is not content with Yahweh and his ways getting credit for the victory they feel left out. Never mind that once Midian was on the run, it was Ephraim who Gideon called out to secure the victory over the enemy who had actually killed Oreb and Zeb. Never mind that. It wasn't enough glory for them, so they complain. When Yahweh deserves the glory, Ephraim wants the glory. When Yahweh has won the mighty victory, Ephraim is grumbling. I mean, just think about their situation. They've been hiding in caves because these people from the east, including, including Midian, are coming and taking all their crops. And so they get what other crops they could hide in their caves. Now God has finally brought about the defeat of this enemy that has been wreaking havoc on your life. And what are you doing? You're Grumbling. Saying we should have gotten more credit for what happened. We should have played a bigger role. Not a good look. So the picture on postcard number one is self glory instead of God's glory. And that takes us to postcard number two, which runs from verses four to 17. And the picture here isn't much different than the first. We call the last picture self-glory. You could call this picture self-interest. See, Gideon, we hear, had summoned his 300 men, the ones who'd stayed up all night with their torches covered and broken the jars and blown the trumpet and shouted, blowing trumpets, for the Lord and for Gideon, for the Lord and for Gideon, and seen the Midianite army and all those with them, set against each other, and then on the run. They'd been pursuing and fighting all day, and here they are, exhausted, but still hot on the trail of Zeba and Zalmunna, the three kings, and they come up to Succoth, which is an Israelite town, and they ask for help, and then after that, Penuel, another Israelite town, they're asking for help. We just need a little bread so we can continue this pursuit. But these two Israelite towns refuse them And not only refuse them, but mock them. Now again, there are charitable ways of looking at these Israelite towns. I mean, sure, Gideon had defeated some 120,000 men with his 300. But Ziba and Zalmunna still have an army of 15,000. They could surely regroup and come and take that little army of 300. And then, then if if we've aided this enemy, we're going to be in a a heap of trouble. It's probably wiser at this point to just kind of sit on the sidelines, wait for you guys to settle things, we'll be Switzerland, and then when everything's all right, we'll step in and help whoever needs it. But God knows motives And the way the author tells this story, it's a story about God's victory. This isn't two neutral parties at war. From the beginning all the way until the end, this is about God triumphing. And we know the Midianites have been cruelly oppressing God's people. They are against God and His people. Now God is acting Clearly, to rescue his people. So the real issue is not Succoth and Penuel just trying to wait things out. The real issue is they are blind. They don't see what's actually happening. We could say it this way: they're not interpreting their situation theologically. They're not thinking in terms of who Yahweh is and how Yahweh is acting. Instead, they're focused on self-preservation. And it's that focus on self-preservation that blinds them to how God is acting. Isn't that typical? When we get our eyes focused on ourselves, When our eyes are focused on ourselves, they're not focused on God. And when our eyes aren't focused on God, it's hard to see how God is acting. And so we, we are blind to the very things God's doing in the midst of our hard situations because we're so focused on ourselves. If your hard situation, and I know there are many here this morning, varied, but if your hard situation has gotten you so that you're so focused on yourself and preserving yourself that you fail to look to God. Then, like Socketh and Penuel, you will miss the ways that God is acting in your situation. And perhaps ironically, but not surprisingly, in the end, for Socketh and Penuel, their self-interest leads to their ultimate destruction. Succoth's leaders are whipped with briars. Penuel not only has their tower torn down, but they're all killed. I mean, how often do we think we're doing ourselves a favor by looking out for ourselves instead of looking to God? But in reality, we're actually making things worse for ourselves. So the picture on the second postcard is a picture of self-interest instead of faith in God. The third postcard comes in verses 18 to the end, 18 to 34. And it continues the theme that we've been finding. It's another surprisingly dark picture for a time of God's victory. And we could call this picture lust for power. Lust for power. It begins in verse 18 with a surprising revelation. You see, we think as Gideon and his 300 men are chasing these two kings, that he's chasing these two kings because he wants to utterly bring about God's complete victory for the glory of God. But surprise... He's here for a very different reason. He's here, we find out, out of personal revenge. His family had been killed by these two kings. And now he's bent on exacting revenge. I mean, certainly the author could have told us the story and, and, and told us that earlier on and said, because these people had done such evil things, Gideon and his heart for justice was pursuing them. But the way it's told to kind of surprise us, we thought he's acting for Yahweh, but now he's acting for himself. It's meant to alert us to things not being quite right. Gideon's motives aren't quite what we originally thought they were. And that's the first glimpse we get that maybe he's after, there's something different going on besides just pursuing God there's a a lust for power and that lust for power continues in verse 27 when Gideon uses the spoil of victory to make an ornate ephod now an ephod was a priestly garment it was a garment that priests wore priests wore And it it held different devices, umen and thumen and things like that, to to help determine how God was directing the people. So, in Gideon creating an ephod, he's actually trying to usurp a priestly role. He wasn't a priest. He hadn't been appointed a a priest, and yet he's creating an ephod. And in case... We miss what a bad thing this is. The author does not hold back in his assessment. Look at verse 27. It says, I'm looking at 9, 27, 8, 27. It says, and all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So he's revenge seeking and he's priest usurping. Usurping the role of priest. And then at the end, we see him doing things that only a king would do. If you've been reading through Judges, you know that when you get to verse 28, So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest for forty years in the days of Gideon. You're expecting it to be over. But then there's this little addendum that basically says, By the way, Gideon did things. That a king would do. And not just any kind of king. A pagan king. So we hear of how he gathers a harem for himself. In verse 30. And then in verse 32 we're told. That he has a son. And he names him. Abimelech. Now. Sometimes it would be helpful if they took Hebrew names and translated them instead of transliterated them. Transliterate is just you take the Hebrew sounds and replicate them in English. So if you were to say these Hebrew words, it would be Abimelech. You know, that's his name. But translated, it means, my father is the king. He names his son, my father is the king. It's not very subtle, is it? You see, he's not just priest usurping. He's also trying to play the king. Now, we do know, as we read, he's already told the people he won't be their king. That's a role that belongs to Yahweh alone. But it's as if he feels like, okay, they asked me, I said the right thing, I passed the test, I gave the right words, and now I can act like a king because I said that. God isn't after our lip service. He's after our hearts. And though Gideon does give important lip service to who Israel's true king is, and I don't want to diminish that, his actions reveal the true state of his heart. He wants the power and influence of a king. He's not just revenge-seeking. He's not just priest-usurping. He's also king-usurping. Put simply, Gideon has a lust for power instead of being a humble servant of God. Those are the pictures from the front lines of God's victory. It's not a happy scene. Here God is doing mighty things, winning a remarkable victory, and God's people are making a mess of things. I think it's revealing. Yes, 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 God has to deal with the enemies that are out there. But God also has to deal with the enemies that are right here in my own heart. See, we often think the problem is situational. It's because of my circumstances. It's because of what happened to me here. It's because of what's going on right here. And I don't want to diminish those things. But the Bible says our deepest problem is the sin that dwells in our own hearts. You see, those circumstances are simply revealing the crud that's inside. So when Israel even has those awful circumstances revealed or or reprieved, relieved still you're seeing this picture of an Israel that's fraught with sin God's people experiencing the best of times God's mighty victory on their behalf yet the postcards from the front lines show pictures of their sinfulness their preoccupation with themselves instead of God revealing And I think we can think about that at a personal level. I think it's also important to think about that in terms of how the wider story of the book of Judges unfolds. You see, as you're reading along in the book of Judges and you get to chapter 7, you expect the story to end there because our hero of faith, weak as though, though he was, has won a mighty victory. 300 unarmed men rout a massive army. And then we expect things to move on. Now, we know there'll be a cycle, a cycle we've grown accustomed to. So we know Gideon's going to die, and Israel will again do evil in Yahweh's eyes, and then God will raise up another deliverer. So we're expecting something like that. That's what we saw with Othniel, the first judge. That's what we saw with Ehud, the next judge. That's what we saw with Deborah and Barak, the last judges we studied. But it doesn't end at chapter 7. Judges, you see, is not just a cycle that continues. As we saw when we did our overview at the beginning, it's a downward spiral. It's not just after the death of Gideon that the people begin to sin. Their evil is seen even during the time of God's victory. And Gideon himself, unlike the judges before him, sins horribly. And that's the same thing the judges after him, Jephthah and Samson, will do. Chapter 8 is the ending that none of us would want written of us. God's people are able to take the mighty victory of God and turn it into a trophy of their own rebellion. Think of the phrase, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory could apply. That's just, that's just the front of the postcard. But there's more going on in chapter 8 than just the pictures of Israel's rebellion. To use the analogy of the postcard, there's a note on the back that we need to read. It's a note that tells us a different but complementary story. If you're trying to think of it in terms of a narrative, there's a sub-theme that's running That interplays with that main theme, and they're both really important how they interplay off of one another. See, this note on the back draws our attention to two things. Gideon and kingship. Gideon and kingship. Now, we know kingship plays an important role in the book of Judges. The book ends, the last five chapters of the book, end by telling us four times there was no king in Israel. And this book was written then in large part to show Israel their need for a particular kind of king. The way out of this moral mess we're in isn't just to try harder to do better. Yeah, your life stinks. You've made some bad decisions. Just try and make better decisions. Yeah, our society is going in a bad direction. Well, we just need to summon that Olympic spirit and be better people, and we can all get it wrong... North and South Korea will be happy again if it just summons the best part of us. It doesn't work like that. After all, the assessment of the book of Judges is that we're all in this mess because we're doing what's right in our own eyes. We're already trying to do a right thing, and that's what's making a mess of things to begin with. No, the way out... Is for a certain type of king who can come and rescue us not only from the enemies without, which we need, but also from the sin within. See, kingship is really important in Judges. And this chapter, chapter 8, is the first chapter where kingship really comes into focus. So if you know in the whole book kingship's important and you come to a chapter where kingship is featured, you need to think about it. Look, Zeba and Zelmuna, we could call them the double Zs, tell Gideon in verse 18 that he looks like a son of a king. First, oh, something's going on there. And then in verse 22, as we've already seen, Israel asked Gideon to rule over them in a sort of dynastic way. You, your son, your grandson, be a king like the pagan nations and Gideon corrects them in the next verse and tells them that Yahweh should be the one who rules over them. And we've already seen how Gideon does king-like things including naming his son, "My father's the king." So the notes on the back of the postcard are going to clue us into something important about kingship. And they also deal significantly with Gideon himself. Now, Gideon really is the focus of chapter 8. On that first postcard, he's the one dealing with the Ephraimite self-glorification. On the second postcard, he's the one dealing with Succoth and Penuel's self-interest. And on the third postcard, it focuses exclusively on him leading Israel. So, with this idea of, of looking at the notes and seeing these themes of Gideon and kingship, let's go back and look at each postcard again. The first postcard reveals what a shrewd and important leader Gideon is. In the midst of this life and death battle, one tribe is angry. And Gideon's capable leadership is able to abate their anger and keep momentum moving forward. And he does so Through humility. He tells Ephraim how great they are in comparison to him. I love it. You remember when you first saw Gideon, he's hiding in a wine press? That's because Abiezer had a vineyard. They were about grapes. He says, Look, if you just Take the gleanings of the grapes of Ephraim. They're not even worth comparing with everything I've done. By analogy, it's like, oh, I did is stand around with a bunch of guys with trumpets and break, you know, break the clay jars. What did you do? You came and you killed the kings. You guys did great. I didn't do much. There's so much that we can commend in Gideon's approach: the diplomacy, the humility. But at the same time, we're left wondering. Was it the right approach? Remember, as we saw, Ephraim has a heart problem here. They want credit that belongs only to God. Gideon has heard with his own ears God say to him that he was winning this victory in a certain way so that it would bring him and him alone victory so that Israel wouldn't be able to say, my hand did this. So when Gideon hears Ephraim's words, he should know that they're undercutting the very purposes of God in victory. If ever a leader, a true leader, was needed to step up, this was it. Someone who could stand up and preach and say, God has said... Ephraim, do not this day steal glory from Yahweh alone. Look, I am nothing, and though I am even less than you, even you are nothing in comparison with Yahweh. He alone deserves the glory. Don't bring God's judgment down upon us by attempting to steal God's glory for yourself. Let us cup our hands over our mouths, and instead of being focused on ourselves, Worship Yahweh this day who has won the victory. Something like that might have been in order. It's not what he does. So you see, Gideon is complex. There's another word I want to use for it. He's alloyed. Alloyed. That means he's a mixture of two different things on postcard 1 we see Gideon who has this great power and capacity and leads well and yet we also see his failings which leave us wanting something more wanting something even better and those two things come together in Gideon he's complex he's a Lloyd. So let's look at postcard number two. Again, we see mighty Gideon leading on. I mean, Succoth and Penuel choose self-preservation over trusting God, and so Gideon brings justice upon them. They get what they deserve. He knows they've done wrong. He passes by. He's able to keep his men going. He's able to... Throw the 15,000 into confusion through a sneak attack. He's able to capture the kings, and then he comes and does what he's supposed to do. You see his great strength as a military leader, you see his concern for justice, you see how Gideon delivers Israel. It's a very pro Gideon story. But again, the text isn't so flat. Gideon is a Lloyd. He's a mixture of good and bad. For example, it appears that he's no longer acting in dependence upon God. Think of the picture of Gideon here compared with the picture of Gideon in chapter 6 and 7. In chapters 6 and 7, we see a weak man with great faith and dependence on God. But if you're reading the note on the back of the postcard, it's like it's saying, here is a great man with little dependence on God. And he told Succoth, I'm going to come and your leaders, I'm going to whip with briars. He comes and he does that. He tells Penuel, okay, I'm going to come and I'm going to tear down your tower. There's a certain sense where you're like, okay, that's just. But then all of a sudden we hear, and he also murdered everybody in Penuel. I'm like, ooh, that might have been a little over the top. Killing a whole Israelite town on the day of Yahweh's victory? This doesn't sit right with us. So again, you see Gideon and and how Israel needs a man like Gideon. A man who's a leader, who has power, who can deliver, who can act with justice, who can lead Israel. You see that. Israel needs Gideon. But again, there's this undercurrent of his failings that leaves us wanting more. He doesn't quite fit the mold. He's a Lloyd. And that's why the third postcard is all about a Lloyd Gideon, the good and the bad. And we see him doing what's right. He defeats the double Z's. More importantly, and I think most importantly, he refuses Israel's offer of kingship, instead pointing Israel not only then in that moment, but for all time, that their ultimate ruler should be Yahweh. And the epitaph for his life given in verse 34 talks about all the good things he had done for Israel. Israel needed Gideon. They needed a man like Gideon. There's so much that's right here. This is exactly the kind of leader Israel needs given their moral mess. But there is so much wrong, as we've already seen. And I think the story that punctuates that is the story of his son. begins in verse 20. Gideon asks his oldest son, Jether, to kill the two Z's. And Jether acts just like Gideon did two chapters ago. He cowers, he's afraid. Do you guys remember? It was that afraid, cowering man that God chose to bring about the victory. Someone who realized his dependence on God, not who was cavalierly running people through for the sake of revenge, who was killing whole towns because he was upset they didn't give him bread. And then the scene. I mean, there's you know, not a lot of details in this story, but we get this. We get the detail. After he's run through, he's going over to their camels and he's taking the crescent ornaments off of them. What's up with that? It's contrasting. What Gideon was, Jethro reminds us of, and what he's now. A Lloyd. A quasi-king who does much good But a quasi king who could have done so much more. In the end, Israel's led to idolatry because of him. So that's the notes on the back of the postcard. And what are they all telling us? They're telling us that the solution for Israel is a great ruler. A king who is in some ways like Gideon, but also we know who needs to be Yahweh himself. And they also tell us Gideon is not that man. Far from it. If Gideon is alloyed, the notes on the back of the card, postcard give us an appetite for something unalloyed. Someone unalloyed. A king who can lead us. But without the stains that Gideon has. Without the shortcomings of Gideon. A king who's completely righteous. Who's totally humble. And a king who can rule over us without usurping Yahweh's rule over us. Even, I'd say, a king who can serve as our priest. Again, without doing it in a usurping way that leads to idolatry. Isn't that interesting? These two different sides of the postcard. On the one side, you read Judges 8, and you see the wickedness of our hearts. The enemy's not just out there. It's in here. But then you flip the postcard over and just kind of pay attention to some of the things that are going on. The note. And it, it gives you a longing for a leader like Gideon, but greater than Gideon. I mean, you read the story, and, and a lot of you, in, or a lot of your heart is rooting for Gideon. You delight in the good he accomplishes. You nod your head when he points people to Yahweh as the true king. And yet, he leaves you longing for something more. There's just something not right. You're longing for an unalloyed version of himself, a king who is wholly good. You see what Judges 8 is doing is as you read it, it's shaping our hearts to embrace the good news of Jesus Christ. It shapes our hearts to see that we are sinners who rebel against God, even while He's acting on our behalf. For some of us in this room, we're convinced of our own goodness. We think we've got it all together. Yeah, I slip up here and there. But by and large, I am, I'm pretty great. My spouse is lucky to have me. My children and grandchildren are. My company is. Yeah, you might not voice it like that. But in your heart of hearts, that's what you believe. Sounds like Ephraim, doesn't it? Perhaps it sounds like Succoth and Penuel. Maybe even sounds like Gideon and his lust for power. God is giving you an opportunity this morning to see the true state of your own heart. See that you need someone who can deal with the sin that's there, not just the circumstances. You see, God isn't just here to make our outward circumstances better. The rest of the scriptures say He comes to deal with sin. That's not the only way Judges 8 shapes our hearts to embrace the gospel. Because I think it shapes our hearts to long for a king like Jesus. He's not only meek and servant-hearted. He's actually able to do something about the sin problem that was exposed in Judges 8. Because Jesus died on the cross for our sin. And then he rose on the third day to defeat death. If ever there was an unalloyed king, it was Jesus. Some of you are here this morning and you're not followers of Jesus. I want you to know how glad we are that you're at our church. Keep coming, keep paying attention, asking questions. That's, That's something we welcome. And one of the things I want to encourage you to do is just examine Jesus. Open up the Gospels and read about him you'll find he is an entirely different kind of king than anything any other religious system or any other leader in this world has offered. He is the only unalloyed king. And it's the kind of king we need. That's the beauty of Judges. Right when the book of Judges is taking us into that downward dive where, where we're descending into the real thick, dark part of Judges. Even as it's doing that, saying, Gideon, do some good things. Kingship. Sounding that theme. It's pointing us to the way out. It's offering us hope. You see, these postcards from the front line ultimately point us to Jesus a far better gideon goodness unalloyed let's pray father thank you so much for jesus messiah jesus king jesus unalloyed goodness all that we need to rescue and deliver and lead us may our hearts well up with praise to him today in jesus name amen